Hi, this is Danielle from The Jealous Curator, and this is episode 154 of Art for Your Ear. This episode is brought to you by Thrive, a 300-member strong group that supports female, genderqueer, and gender non-binary visual artists from around the world by providing the community and accountability necessary to help them achieve their personal and professional goals. They do this through membership in their Thrive Mastermind program, which I joined a few years ago because I needed a lot of help with the staying accountable part. Members sign up for a year and meet monthly online with a small group of other artists to talk about their work, goals, questions, and to celebrate the victories. That's important. Thrive's motto is make art, meet your people, and do the work. Yes, yes, and yes. Check out thriveartstudio.com to learn more and follow them on Instagram at Thrive Art Studio. My co-host today is the hilarious and uncensored Terrence Payne. <laughs> in other words, yes, there is swearing in this episode, so consider yourself warned. Terrence draws huge pattern-covered pastel drawings, well, when he's not sewing quilts, but that will get explained later. Terrence also owns a gallery in Minneapolis, an art collective called Rosalux. As a friend and storyteller, Terrence is hilarious, and as a gallerist, he is insightful and helpful to emerging artists. Before we talk to Terrence, though, I want to talk about something I hear a lot of you talking about, money. Again, with this new format, I'll be starting each episode talking about something I think is worth sharing, and in today's case, that is cold, hard cash. Kinda. So over the first two episodes, this segment has gone from being called Danielle Gets Deep to <laughs> Deep Thoughts by Danielle Krissa. Yeah, I'm not sold. For now, this part of the podcast is just going to be called, Hey, Here's Something I Was Thinking About. <laughs> yeah, see, now that will cover everything from grief to the deliciousness of fried cheese curds. Yeah, I can't actually mention Minneapolis without letting my mind wander to fried cheese curds. If you have not tried them, you have to because they're insanely good. And my mouth is actually watering just thinking about them. Okay, anywho, back to today's topic. Money, moolah, cash, big bucks, the almighty dollar. How many of you are shuddering right now? Yeah, it's not really a topic people love talking about, especially artists. Of course, that's not true across the board. Ashley Longshore, my friend and co-host from two episodes ago, has no problem when it comes to asking for what she's worth. But the majority of artists, in my experience, are not very comfortable or confident in this area. I have been thinking about this a lot over the past few years, you know, now that I've actually started showing my work to the world and exchanging money for it. Sure, we all wonder about pricing. Do you do it by square inch? Is it based on an hourly rate that you should be paid? Is it based on your years of experience? I think it's a combination of all of those things, and Terrence and I will get into this more in depth from his gallerist point of view, but I don't actually want to focus on the dollars and cents part of this topic. See what I did there? A little money pun. I want to add one more word into the list of money synonyms, worth. So according to dictionary.com, worth is listed as two things. One, value, as in money, or two, usefulness or importance as to the world, to a person, or for a purpose, i.e., your worth to the world is inestimable. That's a really tricky word to say, but you get the gist. This is why I believe a lot of artists have trouble pricing their work. 
It's not about worth, as in value. It's about the other kind of worth, the really important one. It is really hard to put a dollar value on your work when you aren't valuing yourself as an artist. I wrote a long post about this last fall, so I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I did want to share the last couple of paragraphs because I think they summarize the um, point that I really want to make today. Oh, and for context, this was around the time that my book, A Big Important Art Book, Now With Women, came out in the fall of 2018. A book that was rejected five times because publishers, quote, weren't sure people would read an in-depth book about women. Yeah. This was also during the Brett Kavanaugh hearings and in the midst of the Me Too movement. So I was mad and frustrated and thinking about not only my own stories and feelings about my worth, but those of so many other women. Ready? Here we go. Here's the thing. As women, we've been taught to be polite. Don't speak up. Don't rock the boat. Don't be a nag. Be a good girl. Add being a creative person to that, male or female, and self-worth can take another hit. Is my work good enough? Does my work matter? Are my ideas important? Can I charge money for, insert anything, here? Have you ever had someone ask you to buy your work, and you either just give it to them for free or cut them an insane deal? Yes, me too. Don't do that anymore. The answer to all of the questions above is a resounding hell yes. What you do has worth. Your ideas have worth. The experiences that have brought you to this point in your life have worth. And yes, creativity is an absolutely worthy use of your time. When we get busy, why does our creative practice fall to the bottom of our priority list? It falls below picking up the dry cleaning for crying out loud. That said, you'd think the first step would be making time for your artwork. But there's one very important thing you have to do first. You have to believe that there's worth in making time. Once you truly believe that, you will make the time. No excuses. You will show up to the studio. No excuses. You will answer yes when someone asks you if you're an artist. No excuses. You have worth. We all do. In the studio, at home, and in the world. Own it. So there you go. Those are the last two paragraphs of that post. And by the way, you have worth and own it were written in caps and bolded. <laughs> if you ever doubt your self-worth, remember this rant. And when you price your work, remember this rant. Worth number one and worth number two go hand in hand in this particular situation. Okay, that seems like a good segue for me to come off of my soapbox and introduce today's co-host properly, Terrence Payne. Each time Terrence co-hosts with me, he's going to share different tips that he gives the artists at Rosalux. Can you guess what today's subjects are? Yep. <laughs> Pricing. Cringe. And even worse for some of you, talking about your work to other humans. Yeah. I didn't even have to think about what I was going to call this segment. It just came to me in a moment of genius. Ready? Pain points with Terrence Payne. I mean, it was right there. <laughs> I realized we should have some kind of sound effect that goes along with that, and I will work on it. Okay, let's jump in. I'm sure he's dying to tell a few insane stories before, before we get down to business. Here's my conversation with Terrence Payne in Minneapolis. Hi, Terrence. 
Hi, Danielle. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I am doing great. Thanks for asking. We're back. <laughs> this is, I think, is this the third time? You're on yeah, here? it's the third time. This is the charm. Yeah. And now, and now you're not just a regular old guest. You're a co-host. I know. It's a lot of responsibility, but hopefully it I is. Can, I can carry my weight. I hope so. Don't mess it up. <laughs> um, so we're going to cover a whole bunch of things today, um, but I kind of want to just start with recapping what is going on with you and your art and your gallery and um, all the stuff so that people kind of know what you're doing and all that. So I was looking on your Instagram. Uh, you haven't been updating it that much. I've been, you know, taking a pause over the summer because my wife's been ill. But I'm just getting back into the studio thing, mm-hmm. getting ready for a show coming up in February at Rose Lux. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah, which is actually it was kind of nice to take a little break because, um, you know, things have been weird here since 2016. And I felt <laughs> like uh, things are getting weirder right now. Yeah, his big, his big orange fingers were getting too far into my head with my work. And I'm like, I'm so fucking tired of, like, responding to this. And, like, who cares? Like, nobody's going to see this. That's going to change their mind anyway. So um, I've been kind of, like, regrouping and thinking about things that I care about and going back to that. And so this next show looks like, I don't know, It's right now it's shaping up to be about mortality which is always fun for everybody (laughs) well you know what it's commonality it affects everyone well you know yeah i just figured i'll start broad and see where it goes and (laughs) it's been a lot of fun is that i saw a typography piece you're working on yeah yeah you know that was the one thing i did um from the last show i was really getting into doing these sort of cursive yeah they're great so would, will that be in the new show, do you think? Yeah, there's going to be a little bit of that. Um, the working title of it is like Horror Vacui, because that was always a phrase that I thought was fun from art school. And I was like, why shouldn't I just cover every single part of every picture plane that I present to my audience and then use sort of um, oh cliches from like bad horror movies that I grew up <laughs> watching and stuff like that. So that one that you were looking at, it was called the working title is like spilling your guts. So the idea was like all these like letters just falling out of this big like blob mass kind of thing. And I was just like, how gross can I get? So <laughs> the, the one on my desk right now is a dead cowboy slumped over his saddle. Well, and it's sure. going to say sunset over him. I don't know. We'll see where it goes. It's always, this is the fun part. And then with the gallery, you know, we are just um, cruising along, man. We've had some really good shows and we just redesigned our website and got our marketing squared away. Yeah, it's looking really good. Yeah, and um, we've started doing some, uh, ah, God, I hate to use big words. Anyway, we just started this newsletter. We're just doing a little more audience engagement. Something that's been a lot of fun is we've been visiting the homes of collectors, of people that buy work from the gallery, and just talking to them about how they go about 
buying art and why they started buying art and doing a nice photo spread of their home and who are the artists they like and how's that part of their lives. And they've been really interesting and really fun. And we've gotten a really great response from our general audience. Like they're really excited about it. So we're going to keep doing more stuff like that. I think that's so cool. So the, some of the stuff that they tell you, like the reasons for buying or when they buy or whatever, are you surprised by their answers? Yeah, I mean, um, the last one that I did was with a friend of mine, Kelly Hayes, who's bought a few pieces of my work. And I've always been super impressed by his collection. Just his home is just beautiful. And for him, you know, it was just a very social thing. And these are artists that he knows that he's met from going out to openings and stuff like that. And he's been collecting work here in Minneapolis since the 70s when he moved up here and I don't know, you know, if you find when they're talking about their art collection, they're giving you their personal history and they don't even really necessarily know that they're doing it and how they're sort of milestones in their lives, you know, because in my own collection, I think I look at a piece of artwork and I was like, Oh, that's the night we got drunk and bought that one. <laughs> that was fun. <laughs> yeah. I know that's, that is the really neat thing is especially when you've bought it from, I always like to know more than just about the piece. Like I always like to know the story of the artist and what they were doing at the time. Yeah. Too, you real, know? Yeah. I think there's a real connection that happens. I mean, a lot of times, sometimes you're selling to designers and things like that and it's not as personal. Um, but you know, I always think about whenever I have an exhibition or something like that, I never want to make the presumption that I'm going to sell art. I just think of it as an opportunity to make new relationships with people that might be a sale down the line in a year or two, because you know, my work's big mm -hmm. and it's kind of a commitment and stuff like that. But just getting to talk to people and seeing where they're entering it through their own personal experiences and point of view, you know, if, if, if they're like picking up on what I was hoping people were going to learn from what I was doing, or if they're bringing something totally new that I wasn't conscious about, because it's, it's a total conversation that happens over time. Like once you're done with a piece of art, you know, you can't control it anymore. People are going to do what they're going to do with it. And that's just part of it. And when somebody, you know, makes the commitment to purchase it and make it a part of their home, that's really, you know, validating. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. And it takes, it does, it takes on a new life when it gets into that collector's home. It's so cool that you're following up to see, you know, where they're yeah. where they're living now. I remember selling the very first piece I ever sold when I was in art school, uh -huh. and it was um, a painting that I'd done in I think uh, maybe third year, and this was a fourth year juried show, and um, I had it hanging up in the show, and it had been in my res room for a year and a half, and mm -hmm. so it was just part of my you know. Res rooms are pretty small, so it took up a large percentage of wall space. So I was used to looking at it, and then so I was at the show, and all of a sudden I see it walking out. It was like six foot by six foot, and I just see feet and holding it, you know, and then it walking out. And I remember thinking, oh no, but where is it going? And is it a nice home? And you know. <laughs> Because it was sort of a baby, you know, I'd had it for so long yeah. and I didn't even get to talk to the, I didn't notice that it had been bought until it was on the way out the door. And I had so many questions like, what room is it going to hang in? Like, you know, why did you buy it? All these things. And I never got to ask. And it's kind of cool that you're going and asking that stuff. Yeah. And I think it's, um, well, for us, something that's happened 
like, you know, we've had the gallery for, geez, I guess almost 18 years now. And wow, our, our audience is always skewed a little bit younger. And we get a lot of first time buyers, you know, that are just like they come because they've heard it's like a fun thing to do to go to these openings and things like that. And you start talking to them. And, you know, in the past, we've heard I've. I'm an eavesdropper. I listen to what people are saying about the work because I'm curious. And, you know, for a while we were hearing a lot of like, this is so cool, but it could never like work in my house. And I'm like, what do you mean it couldn't work in your house? And like one of the things that we did years back was we partnered with um, room and board, the furniture company. And we set the gallery up as like little vignettes with like little furniture groupings and paired them with artists that sort of match that. It's sort of a showroom so that we could literally show people mm-hmm. how they could have this in their home. And it, it worked really well. It was just like a one weekend thing that we did for fun. But those same people came in and they just saw the light bulbs going off and then the sales started happening. But, um, you know, there's a lot of education that happens. And this is these articles have been a really good way, I think, to sort of let other people put themselves in that situation by reading these articles and be like, Oh, this person seems like a normal person. It's not like this weird archetype that you see in movies of the eccentric art collector. It's just like (laughs) Joe blow from down the street. who just likes to have really cool things and has more interesting things to do than, you know, watch TV and look at porn. So, (laughs) well, you know, okay. We're, the we're, we're cutting into exactly what I wanted to talk to you about, but I didn't get yeah. to do my sound effect. Oh shit! Sorry. Or call what it is. So Let's back it up. Well, we're just gonna we're just gonna throw it in right here. So okay. I'm very proud. I mean, it's because I'm so proud of the alliteration and uh. the clever wordplay. So with this new podcast, all of you awesome co-hosts have your own segments, and so yours is going to be called Pain Points with Terrence Payne. Yeah, it's so good. <laughs> so proud of myself and so yeah you sent me some of these articles so are the the articles you send them out as a newsletter these were something that um we've just done with our artists in the gallery okay um well they are fantastic you sent me a few and so Mm -hmm. um within this season you'll probably be on two or three times so i thought yeah for pain points with terrence Payne. The first installment, um, there were some things in one of the articles that I thought were so great that I hear people talking about all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first thing I want to talk about is pricing, because you had yeah. some really great points about pricing. And then the other thing was, um, basically, <laughs> you've got it written here, selling your art and talking about it to strangers, which I think is really great because um, making your art is one thing, but getting into a gallery setting or wh- wherever you're selling it, you know, do you, do you accidentally babble on? Do you, you know, does it go sideways too quickly? Are you too shy to talk to people about your work? Um, so I kind of wanted to talk a little bit th- about that and um, pass on all of your knowledge. Yeah, I mean, these are things that we do for artists at the gallery and for your listeners that don't know. Rose Lux is an artist collective in Minneapolis. And one of our missions is to strengthen the studio practices of all of our artists because we have, you know, all ranging ages and experiences. And one of the things that we can do is share our experiences with each other so that everybody's sort of operating at the same level professionally. And um, yeah, this was one thing that a lot of people weren't necessarily comfortable 
talking to people about their art and especially when you add the added pressure of money yeah which almost is like carries shame which i don't understand but um a lot of artists aren't comfortable talking about that in relation to the art because i think in some ways it might seem like they are trivializing the work that they do by putting a price tag on it which i think all comes from the outside and it can be fixed from the inside so Mm -hmm. that's kind of where this um this little class that we put together for artists came from and um yeah so let's start with pricing your art okay that is a big one people always ask me and i'm like don't ask me it's such a hard thing so let's let's hear terrence Payne. what do you say well there's two way a couple different ways of looking at it like one way that most people are going to look at it that are honest artists they're going to look at your art by the square foot which is kind of crass but um you have to acknowledge that that's where they're coming from and like if you do art in different mediums and different sizes and things like that, um, know that people are going to be looking at it that way. A lot of artists make the mistake of having a painting that they feel is their best work. So they're going to price that double than a painting that to somebody who doesn't know their personal struggles is going to look pretty similar and they're not going to understand why there's the disparity. Um, And so part of, I think a good starting point is just to really try and look at things objectively and also to sort of assess what your goals are um, for your studio practice. Like, are you selling art just to maintain your practice so you're able to keep going? Are you looking at selling art as living? Um, You know, is selling art something that's necessarily very important to you, but people ask you about it. So you're like, okay, I should be able to be prepared to answer these questions. And I think the best place to start for any artist is get to know the market that your art's going to be in locally and then also take a look at what's going on nationally online because it used to be when I started out 25 years ago, um, you know, you could get away with pricing your work differently in different cities because different markets would do different things, but that's not something that you can do anymore because people can see pretty easily just by going online and Googling you what you're selling your artwork at. So you need to have, you need to have consistent pricing overall and going out and finding artists that are doing work in a similar style at a similar scale, um, showing in places that you're showing will give you a really good idea of what the market is going to be giving you for your work. And that's kind of where I started out back in the day because I had no idea either. And did you base it on Minneapolis then? Because that's where you were? Yeah, at the time I was showing mainly in Minneapolis and then I started showing in Chicago as well, um, which, you know, back in the 90s, you're able to sell things for, you know, 30 to 50% more in Chicago than you were in Minneapolis just because it was a bigger more competitive market, but you know. Okay, so what do you do now? Like if you're selling in a smaller market and that's where you've sort of become established and Mm -hmm. then, you know, New York calls or whatever, um, how do you handle 
that like do you then sell at your smaller town prices that you're established at or do you then make the leap to new york dollars but then that means in your smaller market you have to up your prices now too now i just think about it all as one market okay and i think across the board things have kind of leveled out as far as you know where i'm at as a mid-career artist and what my work's going to sell for nationally Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's different if you're like with a blue chip gallery and something like that. You're just going to let them take care of all that. But if you're an artist that's, you know, doing it yourself and working in your studio and selling your own work online through your website or through Etsy or something like that, you know, you're not going to want to stand out by being so much more expensive than people that are doing the same thing. Right. So, and so how do you establish those prices in the beginning? Like, is it by square inch? Is it by, like, um, in your article, um, you, you wrote about, um, you know, factoring in, like, annual studio expenses versus mm-hmm. annual output and, and um, you know, your, your materials, cost for promotion. Like, do you factor all of that in or do you do the square inch or is that all together? You know, that was all, you, those are all numbers that I used in the beginning. Like, I... I figure, how long does it take me to make a piece of art? I want to get paid at least $20 an hour for what I'm doing as a professional, you know, probably right. more. And how, what are the costs of the materials that are going into it? Um, and how much time am I spending doing the marketing, the promotion? That all goes into it, too. And those gave me a really good rough idea of what my minimum that I needed to make on each piece of artwork that I sold was going to be. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as you move along in your career, you can kind of gauge like, okay, I'm going to average about X number of dollars in sales every year um, by doing this, that, and the other thing. And there are going to be events in your career where it makes sense to raise prices, like maybe you sell a piece to a museum or you have a museum show or you start getting a lot of buzz um, in the media and drawing more attention to work then it makes sense to raise the prices of your work then and how how much do you raise them in that situation like you don't all of a sudden triple them no absolutely not and the thing about raising your prices is once you've raised them you can't go back right because if somebody buys at that price and that's the value and know that when you do that you might not be selling the quantity that you were selling in the previous years because you have and maybe it's like an awkward place where, you know, where you started with an audience that was going to be able to afford a certain price point on your art and you're transitioning to an audience that's going to be a little more fluent. Um, you know, it's going to be hard for that year or two while you're making that transition, but it's something, you know, it just depends. It's a personal decision where you're comfortable Mm-hmm. It's the growing pains of owning a business, doing. basically. Yeah, you know, yeah. and um, the other thing to consider, too, is at a certain point, you're going to be represented by other galleries and things like that. So you want to factor that into your retail prices as well, because a lot of paces will take, you know, 50% for representing your work. So you don't want them to be selling your work for a different price than you're selling it for. Right. So you're going to want to take that into account too. But going back um, to the beginning, you know, once I had figured out like what my hourly was and 
what my costs were and things like that, then I could price, you know, what I considered, um, an average piece of artwork in terms of media and size and the amount of time that it took me. And that was just sort of my starting point. And I related back to that when pricing all my other artwork. Right. And that was just really helpful because then I had like a formula that I could use and then I didn't have to think about it anymore. And, you know, the only thing that I do price differently is when I do commission work, mm-hmm. just because, um, you're getting a lot of input from the client and it's a little bit more work from you. And like, they might come into it thinking they know exactly what they want, but they probably don't. Right. Unless they want you. <laughs> um, so, cause I've done this enough times. I, I made a questionnaire for them to fill out. So I know I'm like, do you want the typographic work? Are you more into the patterns? Do you like my floral work? Are you into the figurative work? Do you know what the size is? Do you know what the colors are? Just so we can really get it nailed down. Right. So you're not wasting all that time. Yeah. And I always add 20% to the price of that artwork just because there's a lot of back and forth trying to figure out what it is. Cause I want them to have something that they really like, you know, and tell their friends about. Um, and I'm upfront about that. Mm Mm-hmm in my initial meetings with them, you know, like, Hey, this is a little more work. So this is going to cost this much, but then you get this unique thing that's, you know, tailored exactly to your needs. Yeah. Which is like going back to the collector thing, you know, when they look at it in their home, Mm -hmm. it's, it's like a special thing made by an artist that they love for them. So the story is even more rich for them in that moment. Yeah. And another thing that's happened to me too, over the years, um, with, you know, as I've had success, I've noticed that my artwork has gotten out of the range of people that I think really like it. And so that's affected how I work in the studio too. That was part of the reason why I had the quilting show last year. I was like, well, this is something that I can do that can be more accessible to a broader audience because, you know, it's not like, um, my typical medium, I'm going to price it a little bit lower. Because yeah. Just... And your, yeah, your, your typical stuff is, um, huge mm, and very, yeah. very labor intensive. Um, yeah. Whereas the quilts I could, you know, once I figured out what I was doing, um, <laughs> I could make one in a couple of days. So it was right. Well, I was going to ask you about that because this is sort of the situation that I'm in right now. Cause for mm-hmm. the longest time I was doing small, pieces on paper mm-hmm. so they were priced accordingly right yeah. and then just my own I, I still love those ones but I just was you know as an artist I was growing and changing and um I wanted to get bigger and work on panel and actually like glue chunky stuff that like if I tried to do it on paper it would rip and so you know I I got bigger and moved on to panel and so therefore you know all the things you've already said like I it was taking me a lot longer. Like instead of something taking me an hour, it was taking me 50 hours. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I was using a lot more expensive materials. So of course my prices went up and then, but all the people that were buying from me before were like, Oh, it's really cool, but that's way out of my price range. And I haven't found my new people yet. And then I feel a bit like I've betrayed the people that loved me in the beginning. And so I'm in this weird 
moment that I don't even know. So I'm just continuing and making work that I want to make, but I am not selling it. <laughs> it's not yeah, selling. It will eventually. I mean, the thing that I, part of my, what I do, um, I'm always thinking about how I can keep my artwork accessible to as broad an audience yeah. as I possibly get. And, um, you know, besides the quilting, you know, I've done the wallpaper design because that brings in new audiences. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, that who was that with again? That was, oh, I can never pronounce it right. Right. And they always make fun of me. Uh, Hig and West is the wallpaper company. Oh, okay. Yep. Higgy, Hoog. I don't know. Higgy? I don't know. I always thought it was Heige and West, but I'm just phonetically doing that. We're sorry, you guys. We don't know how to say it, but you make beautiful wallpaper. Yeah, they make the best stuff. Yeah, they do. But that's cool because it brings in new stuff and yeah, um, or new people. And you know, I tried. I was doing screen printing for a while, but then because that was a great way to make things that you know I could produce mm -hmm. myself and they looked really cool still and I had a lot of fun doing it, but I could price them under a couple hundred bucks so people could, you know, buy them depending on the edition that I was doing. Mm -hmm. Um, and now there's so many ways to monetize your studio practice with, um, drop ship companies online, like Printful or society six or whatever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It, you know, if you have really good image files of like the paintings that you're doing now and the collages that are you're charging more for, you can, you know, have a nice reproduction of that made and set up a shop on your website for people to buy it. And the way I think about that, like um, they may not be able to um, afford the the big painting right now, but people's lives change. They get better jobs and further along in their careers. And if I can, if I can get into their brains with an artist book or a quilt or a screen print or a digital print, even and be in their homes and be a part of their lives when they come time a few down years down the road to make the big art purchase that, you know, for their new home or whatever, then hopefully I've already got enough of a relationship going with that. Mm -hmm. I, I like that. That's what you said at the very beginning too, like that it's about relationship building. Exactly. And, um, it's really funny because in the first episode, um, of, of coming back with this podcast, um, I was talking in the, in the beginning about, um, the fact that I had my first big solo show in Toronto in mm -hmm. June and, um, I was so, I did 20 pieces and I was so proud of everything. And I, I had this delusional, like, I was just like, what if everything sells at the opening? <laughs> and, you can't help but think that, but it never happened. I mean. <laughs> and I sold, I sold five pieces and I, instead of being happy about that, and I met some of the collectors who'd actually bought stuff for me in the past, but I never met them. And then here they were at the show. And I was happy about that, but I was, I had a really bruised ego. I was really embarrassed. I apologized to the gallery <laughs> and they were like, what are you talking about? Like, you, like we didn't think like nobody ever sells out their opening. And you know, they said the thing about it's about relationship building, but I think I just, it was such an ego. Yeah. I was so embarrassed. And then I was like, and then I started second guessing the work. Cause I was like, oh, is it not that good? I thought it was good. 
you know, and so then I get into that whole art school, you know, inner critic, yada, yada, all over again. And so reading your article, I was like, oh, okay, that's normal. That's totally, but yeah, even I do it every single time. I'm like, cause it's nerves. It's just a way of obsessing in a different way that you've been obsessing for the last six months. And, um, you can ask my wife about it. She gets so tired of it. Cause I'm just like, if I sell all 12 pieces from that show, that's $60,000. And then I don't have to bartend anymore. Blah, blah, blah. And, you know, you could as- never not bartend anyway. Right. Yeah, I tried it and I went nuts. Yeah, I mean, you have to do it anyway. So, and well, so does Carolyn just shake her head? Like, she just is like, oh, I've heard this way too many times. Stop talking. Yeah, she's just like, oh, I can't wait for the day after your opening. And I'm, like, <laughs> I'm sorry. And so, okay, so of those 12, how many would you sell at an opening usually? You know, typically you sell about four pieces, five pieces, maybe if you're lucky. I mean, you know, it, it kind of depends too on what you're doing. And this is something that I've learned lately. When I did that exhibition of quilts, I sold the thing out in an hour because people were just like jazzed and really excited to see something like totally different for me. Yeah. And the fact that it was just, you know, a quarter of what I would normally charge for a piece of art. So that went fast. And people that had wanted to buy a painting in the past but could never afford it were just like I got here early so I made sure to get one and I'm so happy you did this thank you so much and I was just like okay I hope it keeps you warm whatever (laughs) (laughs) okay so then let me out see this is really I I know that my listeners are going to benefit from this but I am totally using this as a one-on-one consultation for me at this moment yeah okay so so all the quilts sell. So in your head, are you thinking, oh man, I need to make more quilts? Or are you thinking, well, that was fun and that was done. I'm going back to my giant drawings. Yeah. Um, like, Cause you know, there's I that never... ego thing and there's the greed thing where you're like, oh geez, you know, quilts sell like hotcakes, more quilts, more quilts. Yeah. And I thought about it and I, obviously I had that thought, but then that wasn't necessarily like I did the quilts just cause I wanted to play around with texture and for an idea for a larger project that I want to do down the line with mm-hmm. sculptural elements and things. Um, so I never really intended to do them again. I just wanted to know that I could do them when the time came that I needed to. Right. And, um, but then, yeah, the business side of my brain kicked in. Just like, you know, you could do more quilts or you could do capes for women to wear, you know, do fashion, but then you got to carry sizes. Well, capes are one size fits all. Maybe you could do wrap skirts or things like this. And <coughs> it just turned into this, this black hole of like, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, when I sat down to think about it again and actually start to do something with it, I was like, you know, I just want to draw. Yeah. I just yeah. think that, um, and I, you know, obviously I have a schedule and deadlines that I need to keep. So I didn't have time to even play around with the quilts again. And But do you have people asking you to make more quilts? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, and so what do you say? No. I was like, you know what? Keep looking at my website. You never know what's going to pop up or what I'm going to make, you know, and <laughs> there could be a cape. Them. You don't know. Yeah, and I'd still probably like to do that when I, if I can find the time. But the thing that happened, um, uh, so the quilts were a year ago last spring, and then um, the exhibition that I had following that, I 
people really liked the work, but I could tell that there were people there that were a little disappointed that there weren't quilts or there wasn't that oh. thing where I was really pushing it further than I had before. And I was like, okay. So I've kind of upped the ante by changing mediums and doing this really different thing. That's sort of an expectation that people are having now. So I need to think of ways that I can keep this exciting and keep this going for people. Cause you know, you hate to lose that momentum. Uh-huh. You have it. And I feel like I maybe misstepped a little bit. So after the, so then the following show was all drawings, you mean? Yeah. Exactly. Oh, okay. But then, yeah. yeah. But what are you going to do? You know, like yeah. I need, I, I like making the drawings and it, you can't really let those, um, sort of outside pressures and, you know, feeling a need to have a financial return on the work that you're doing influence the work that you're doing. Mm -hmm. I know that's something you said at the beginning. It's like about people feeling funny about pricing and some of the people it's because they're too too scared to like think that their work is worth anything. But then there's the people who are like, well, I don't want to devalue it by putting a price tag on it because the the work is so important to me. So you don't want to be run completely by what people want from you. You want to the reason you became an artist was to do the stuff you want to do. And I think the thing that, um, that you really can't put a price on, but that sells artwork better than anything is people can really tell I've noticed anyway, they know when you're having fun in the studio totally. and you're putting joy into the work as opposed to when you're trying to replicate, um, something that was a big seller for you. Yeah. You know, and so as long as you're continuing to take risks and um, please yourself, eventually your audience will be pleased by that as well. That'll end up being sales. It's just hard, you know, as an artist to like trust that that's going to happen because you just it's a gamble every time. Mm -hmm. And And patience is patience is tricky, especially, you know, I'm I've never been a patient person, but like even now, like there's so much instant gratification with social media. Like just you post something and the clicks go right up, like it's instant. And Mm -hmm. so I think people have that same thing. It's like, well, I did a solo show. Why didn't the whole thing sell out? And it's like, well, I mean, it was such a relief to like read your article and be like, oh, okay, that's not like, that's an anomaly for that to happen. That's not the norm. Yeah, and carrying an inventory is not a bad thing because then you've got a reserve of artwork ready to go for opportunities that may come up from that show where somebody may have been at your show and be like, hey, you know, I have this thing. Would you be willing to show your artwork for this, that, or the other thing? Totally, and you know what? That did happen after my Toronto show. It led to a whole bunch of other opportunities, which I said yes to all of those opportunities. And so it's just kind of now in hindsight, you know, it was the day after the Good thing Carolyn wasn't with me. I would have driven her crazy the day after my, my show. But I was like, oh. And then in hindsight, you're like, oh, that actually led to this and this and this, which actually pushed my work further. And now I'm doing this and this, which I wouldn't have done otherwise. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's just that patience of and trust, which is yeah. tricky. It is. I mean, like for my last show, I had sold three pieces at the show and then I got picked up by a gallery in Palm Springs. So I sent some of that work down there and they sold most of it down there. So eventually, you know, it does eventually go away. Right. Like, like I don't like to, 
I don't want to keep this stuff forever. I well, yeah, especially it. your stuff is huge. You gotta, you gotta move those units. Yeah, exactly. There's other opportunities too. I always hold a couple pieces back for um, different charitable things that I work oh, with yeah. that have art auctions and stuff like that. Um, those are really good. You know, you feel good because you're supporting something that you believe in, but it's yeah. also a really good networking opportunity mm -hmm. um, with reaching an art audience that's at a certain income level. And he's like, oh, yeah, I'm so great. I give away artwork to help these people, and you should buy my artwork, too. <laughs> and, you know, that always ends up being something down the line, too. So, you know, I, I like to think of it as um, you're constantly, like, starting these new relationships, and they're going to pay off down the line. As, and as long as you're continuing to feed these relationships sort of onto that conveyor belt, um, you know, then you're going to have a steady stream of rewards from that mm -hmm. that's how well, you can that is service. that's literally a perfect segue into the other part of the article that i wanted to talk about yeah is selling your art and talking about it to strangers yeah and the networking part and um so can you share a little bit about what you tell your rosalex um artists about you know how they present themselves on the you know they actually first of all show up at the opening and how you know how you do that networking and conversation if that's something you're not really comfortable with yeah i mean part of it is well first of all you want to present your work the best way you can afford to do you know if you're doing drawings make sure that they're framed the one thing that you don't want to do is place obstacles between people um having your art or not having it you know like mm. if they got to frame it or they got to figure out how to do they're going to be less likely and less inclined to purchase your work they may really like it but if you had had it framed they probably would have been more likely to make an impulse buy mm -hmm. yeah make it easy for them to say yes basically yeah exactly yeah. and um something that i like to do is have studio visits i mean one of the nice things about rosalex is we have a network of artists and we're always talking to each other about our work so that's a good way to um get comfortable talking right. about a certain body of work for a show but you should also be really prepared in any social situation to talk about your work and i think one of the thing like a lot of people just aren't comfortable doing it and some people don't want to they have an attitude that like my art should speak for itself i'm like well you're not always going to have a painting on you so you should probably <laughs> be able to talk about it and not look like an idiot and trip over yourself you know and part of the problem like i had starting out was i had so much i wanted to say about my work i just melted down and said nothing mm -hmm. so um and this all kind of goes, something that's really handy to have and something that I have are three to four different versions of my artist statement and my bio written down in files in my computer that I can use for different audiences. Because one of the things that you want to do is be aware of the audience that you're speaking to and use language that they're comfortable with. You're not going to be at a cocktail party and use you know, your thesis statement from college on somebody because they're going to be like, you know, I just want to get a buzz on and have some fun. What are you talking about? <laughs> I feel like we're at school. So the first thing you're going to want to do is um, 
just have like a two sentence response to what kind of art do you do? That's the question that you're going to get. People say, what do you do? You're an artist. What kind of art do you do? And you want to be able to describe your work in a general way that they're going to understand, but make it sound interesting enough that they're going to want to continue the conversation or at least just pass off a business card and move on, you know, to the mm-hmm. next. Um, what I say is I make large colorful oil pastel drawings. They use pattern costume figures and objects to describe the communities and behaviors of the people I see every day. I'm fascinated by weird things people do and why they do them. And I use my work to explore these observations. And then it usually leads into like patterns. I'm like, yeah, I use them for wallpaper and stuff. I think it's funny that I can have like a big thing about anal sex. And then people use this pattern in their fucking house and they have no idea. And I'm like, to me, that's like a win, you know, (laughs) and, and, but that's relatable. Like people like a good joke, you know, or something like that. And you don't necessarily want to put your work down or whatever, but that'll lead into more of a conversation. Or if you're doing, um, a more, uh, a more formal tone, but still keeping it conversational and maybe like, paragraph two or two that you can use for press releases and things like that or if you've got um, anything that you're trying to promote and then you have your more formal language that you use for grant proposals and exhibition opportunities and within the trade Mm -hmm. and it's nice to have like you know just those three three levels of language that you can just pull out at any time and you know, it, it never hurts to have somebody else take a look at it and talk about it with you because in your head it might sound totally normal, but the first time you say it, it just doesn't sound right. So, right. Well, as I was going to say, like with the artists um, at Rosalux, I mean, and anybody can do this. I always say, you know, your tribe can be one person. You don't need to have like a group, you know, if you have yeah. one, one trusted person um, where you actually practice and like say the thing. And hear how it sounds and have them relay back. Like I had uh, Samantha Fields on the podcast as well. And she's a teacher. And she was saying that with her students, she always says, um, because people freeze up during critiques, right? Which is the same as like freezing up while you're trying to present your work at an opening. Mm -hmm. And she said, you know, like critique or feedback, all you want out of that is to know um, how people are perceiving your work. Yeah. So if you practice that statement or whatever with somebody, they might go, well, that doesn't describe it right at all. Or, yeah. you know, it totally, oh yeah, that totally is a perfect description, but maybe throw in, you know, pattern or whatever, um, just to help you understand what it is that's coming out of your mouth and how people are perceiving it. Yeah. And I think listening is as big a part of trying to communicate your own feelings. Like, leaving room for feedback from people, especially in that, you know, going back to the cocktail party setting, when you bring up your work and somebody will be like, Oh, that triggers an interest of theirs. And they relate that to you. And, um, that gives you an opening to stretch that conversation out. Well, yeah. You have to make sure that you listen to that instead of just going into, instead of like, you know, doing your spiel, mm -hmm. like make sure you hear what they're saying back. If you get enough people like coming, um, responding to you in similar ways, that's going to help you refine what you're saying. Like, oh, people really are interested in this idea of community that I talk about with my work. And 
the observations that they see and things like that. So maybe I can use that more than talking about, you know, just like goats or whatever <laughs> I was talking about before. I was going to say sheep. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, you're constantly um, or I'm constantly thinking about how people are thinking about my work and trying to get as much feedback. Like the first time I ever showed my work was at the Minnesota State Fair in 1995 when I moved here. And for some reason, it's like a big fucking deal to have your artwork in the Minnesota State Fair. I don't really understand it because I'm not from here. But <laughs> um, So I went down there to the fair one day and I just hung out in the general area of my work and listened to what people said about it. And it was just brutal. Cause these are just like people that came to the fair to eat food on a stick and like they just <laughs> up or do whatever the hell they're going to do. And, you know, pull some, like this guy's on drugs. What the hell is this? This sucks. You know? But then there are also people that are like, this is interesting. I like this. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to listen to these people yeah. <laughs> more. Um, but it, you know, that helped me like learn how to talk about my work because I was able to use the language they used. And right. if you're at a point too, um, where people have actually written about your work or maybe an exhibition that you had, um, I steal that language all the time because people always do a better job of describing what I'm doing than I do. Cause I'm not a writer. I'm an artist. Um, but I'll lift that language. I'm mm-hmm. used to press release or whatever, because uh, yeah, it just sounds better. And I know it's really hard for a lot of artists um, to sort of have the confidence to talk about their work in a way that makes it sound engaging and desirable because they, for whatever reason, aren't there yet mm-hmm. on their confidence level. And that's a good way to... You know, another thing I tell the artists is to think about yourself as a character um, that's an artist, and you're talking about that person, not you. Mm. So, you know, by using that sort of third person, that's a way that made it easier for me because I just felt like when people were judging my art, they were judging me, and it got way too personal. But if they were judging Terrence Payne, this artist who did these things, then I could give a shit about that guy. That guy can take risks. That guy can do whatever he wants to do. I'm safe over here. You know what I mean? Totally. Yeah, and that's been helpful for people too. Um, and but I don't know. Yeah. Again, well, you know, one of the things too, I um, and I've noticed this a lot that women are particularly. Um, I mean, artists are already, you know, kind of. Um, put put out the self-doubt vibe with people um but women especially do it very apologetic about their work and why they're doing it not all of them obviously but like you know in the balance of men and women I notice that women are a lot more apologetic about it and so one of the things I say to people when you know you're in that setting and somebody says oh my gosh I love this work um if if you are feeling tongue-tied or whatever just or just in general just say thank you yeah don't say oh, well, I just, I didn't have the paper I wanted and I don't love this part of it. Like, don't, yeah. don't talk it down. Like, don't, you know, because it, it, you can be, what's that word? Self-effacing, is that the right word? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. like don't do that. In, even if you're thinking it and your inner critic is saying, tell them how bad this is. Mm-hmm. Don't, just say, 
thank you. And, um, it's a good way to practice being confident, even if you're not, even if you're inside your head, you're freaking out, um, yeah. because it's a much more, it's a much better conversation. Like they don't want to buy a piece of work that you have now just told them sucks. Yeah, no, absolutely. And oh my God, that's the biggest fear is like somebody gets at home and they don't want it anymore. I'm just always like, oh God, but you don't want to. Oh, that was a, that was a problem that I had starting out was the self-effacing thing. Cause yeah. that was sort of my sense of humor. Right. Um, and I had to work really hard to stop doing that in the art world setting because people don't need excuses not to buy art. You don't need to give those to them. Right. They already have, they already have a list of excuses that to, to not invest in art. And yeah, you don't want to. And oh. they're going to let you know if they want to know more about you and your work. Don't, don't make them feel pinned down and just start oversharing because somebody finally turned and looked at you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is something that I've done in the past as well. Just like, Oh my God, blah, blah, blah. And don't, sorry, I'm just giving lists of don'ts now. And I'm thinking specifically about in terms of the opening night for an exhibition, you know, don't get drunk because you're nervous or something like that. There's alcohol there. Like you're at work, you're, go in clock in you can party later but um you know you're more likely to make verbal mistakes if you've had a couple glasses of the boxed wine right and <laughs> dig yourself say no to the boxed wine yeah i mean you know we've all been there just like oh hold totally it, hold it together for a couple hours and the other the other pitfalls of the art opening, um, getting cornered by those people that just want to chew your ear off and see it as an opportunity to talk about themselves endlessly. Like the technique that I've come up with is you put your index finger and middle finger underneath the, their elbow and walk to that side. And as you're doing that, you're basically hurting them like a sheepdog. You turn... <laughs> You're turning them with those two fingers underneath their elbow and you say, oh my God, thanks so much for coming. I'm so glad you're having a good time and you get the hell out of it, you know, <laughs> and I've gotten really good at that because if you ever do that to me, now I'm going to know. Yeah, you will. Yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> because you've got like three to four hours to sell as much of that artwork as you can and to connect with as many people in the audience as you can. Um, they're, if people are really interested and want to chew your off, you know, say, Hey, you know, I'd be happy to do a studio visit. If you want to come by and talk further, I've just got a network tonight. Or if you yeah. want to come by the gallery at another time, I'd be happy to meet you down here as well, you know, or do an artist talk where people can do a little more Q and A and stuff like that. But right. you need to keep moving. And I like also, your technique for pretending you see somebody across the room, you know, yeah, that's a good one too. Just like, Oh, you know what? That's a curator from the MA. I got to go over there and talk to them, but thanks so much for coming. Um, <laughs> and then don't just head straight to the box wine. Well, it's tempting to do. And well, you know what? Another good thing to do too in that situation is if you're just feeling overwhelmed and flustered, take five, man, go outside, walk around the corner, collect your thoughts and then come back fresh. Cause the worst thing you can do is just, 
stick it out too long and get worn down because that's a lot of talking and a lot of sharing and a lot of personalities. Right. Uh, like I, yeah, I've got to halfway through, go take a walk around the block and recharge because otherwise people just tear you up. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot to give of yourself. And especially if you are more of an introvert or whatever, and you're already feeling a little bit vulnerable being in this situation. Yeah. yeah there's nothing wrong with like popping out for a moment and just yeah. pulling it together. Yeah. I do that too. Sometimes like it gets a bit much. Sometimes you just need that moment. Oh, and it lends that air of mystery. Like where has the artist gone? That's right. Yeah, like, you know, I just want to get away from you for a minute. I'll be back. <laughs> just get your checks, checkbooks ready. I'll be back in, in a minute. <laughs> um, and the other, there's two more things to get through on this this pain point. Okay. Stamp branding now. <laughs> yeah, TM. Um, when you're actually um, to the point where you're making a sale of your work, which is really exciting, that's usually a point where you start to overshare. Um, just close the deal and the best thing to do is have if if you're you know in an exhibition situation where you're doing everything yourself have a friend or somebody there that can run the credit card or take a check or however you're taking your payment for you make the handoff or if you're in the gallery make the handoff you've closed the deal it's time to move on to the next person and let somebody else take care of the details for you that you trust um, otherwise it's just, it's like really awkward thing where you're waiting for the square to run and then they got to sign the thing and you're like, isn't this fun? And you're just like, no, it's... well, and I like in the article too, that you said, you know, you don't want to be like, oh man, this is so great. Now I can, you know, pay for my dog's surgery and, you know, blow well, yeah, <laughs> cause that's going through your head. Like, ah, oh, the transmission fell out of my car. I can finally drive again. <laughs> you know, they don't want to hear your sob story or what you, I've, I've heard people do that. Just it's like nails on a chalkboard. Just like, no, don't do that. Yeah. But what you do want to do is when you're out of that environment is keep in touch with those people um, and do things for them because you already know that they are interested enough in your work to put some money behind it. Um, you know, I like to do previews for my collectors and because it's less, congested environment you can mm -hmm. actually walk them around and show them the work before the general opening and it's a good way to put a couple sales under your belt so you're more confident going into the grand opening and so do you do that in like an hour before the show or like the day before or when do you couple do that? days before okay. i do um and it's a little different you know that's more of a cocktails and hors d'oeuvres kind of situation it's a little bit nicer like actual wine in bottles is that what you're saying yeah okay, we're using got bottles it. with mm -hmm. corks um, <laughs> hello a terrence Payne getting it done well it makes them feel appreciated because you know they're getting the special treatment right. and um and then what did you say about the postcards too for like at, at holidays and stuff yeah, send them a greeting card, you know, let them know that you're thinking about them. You know, I keep a separate database. I have like, I have three databases for my communication. You know, one is press contacts, one is my general audience, and then my third is my collectors. And to them, I'll send little newsletters and updates and things that are a little more personal. Or send a greeting card at the holidays. Or if you're really ambitious, like figure out when their birthday is and send them birthday cards. I mean, it's easy to find this stuff out. 
And do you do all of that yourself or do you have people that help you do that? I do that myself. I mean, once you get it set up, like this is all, all these things I consider part of my studio practice. And, you know, part of my discipline is spending X number of days in my studio. And it's not necessarily going to be creating artwork every time. It's going to be updating databases. It's going to be researching exhibition opportunities. It's going to be, you know, things that are more on the business side of things. Um, Because you need to maintain that work ethic for both. Otherwise, if you let one slide, what's the point of doing the other, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And then another thing that I like to do is, you know, every year I, I make an artist book, which is basically just a catalog of all the work that I've done up to that point. And you can get them printed pretty cheaply at a place like Lulu. I mean, it doesn't have, it's not like a fine art book. And I always give those to people that buy my work too. Hmm. Like here, take this book and it sits on their coffee table and they show their friends, you know, cause they're proud of this new thing that they bought and look at what else he does. And maybe they're going to see something they like out of that book and give you a call. You know, that's mm-hmm. happening too. And, um, yeah, so, you know, and it's different for everybody with comfort levels. Um, but I think, you know, if you maintain a basic level of professionalism and get comfortable speaking about your artwork in a language that people will respond to, I think you'll have pretty good success. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and the other thing too, I, I think, like, I think it's so great that you do all that yourself and I do all that myself too. And, um, but I know some artists will have, like, I actually talked to one of my best friends who's super organized. Mm-hmm. I am too, but I also have 12,000 things on the go. And, um, yeah. she said, cause I was making all these excuses about a year ago, about why I wasn't, you know, didn't have a shop set up and wasn't doing this and hadn't updated my website in five years and whatever. And she was like, I'll do it. And I was like, no, no, you know, and, and then she finally said, can you just please let me do this for you? And, um, so I just pay her 20 bucks an hour and she updates all my databases and does all that stuff. And, yeah. you know, I did it, we did it for a month trial. Cause I was like, I would rather have you be my friend than my, you know, admin person. Um, so let's try it for a month. And then after a month, we'll see if it's cool with everybody still. Cause I said, I'm going to make you do all the crap I don't want to do. Yeah. Like, but will you still be my friend? And she was like, yes. Cause she said that crap is actually very enjoyable for me. And I was like, well, I, I, I don't understand that, but okay. And so if you can, if there's a, somebody you have, that's a friend that is like willing to help you or, you know, they're more outgoing and they're willing to like, you know, go get the cards printed and get them mailed out. And like, why not use that help? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I have a hard time taking help myself because I'm a proud man and I can do everything on my own. Oh, but, me um, too. you know, I'm not a man, but I'm, you know, proud. Well, yeah. And I just, I'm also a control freak. So I, am I. I have a hard time trusting that'll get done to my standards. <laughs> uh, me too. Which is so ridiculous because half the time it doesn't get done, you know, because <laughs> my standards are too high. But yeah, like, even if you're in a situation like where you're willing to put enough time into helping a younger artist out and you're having a studio assistant as an intern or something like that, I know known artists that have done that and it's worked out well for them. Mm-hmm. And I think you just have to do that. I've done this with design, like 
because I was a graphic designer for so long that I would always make deals with people that there would be like a one month, like I wouldn't just be like, yes, you're now my person. Cause then if it doesn't work out in a few weeks or a month, you have to have the awkward conversation of saying, get out of here. Yeah. I, I always said that like, well, let's try it for a month and then mm. we'll have a chat after a month and see if everybody's happy. And it gives you an out if it's not working. Yeah. Or if it's not working for them, it gives them an out. And um, I find that really helpful too, because it's just everything's up front. Yeah. 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 And, you know, I've, the places where I have no trouble um, is when I do design work for like Higgin West or yeah. working with galleries where people are, you know, out there promoting and selling your work and helping you to make money. That's great. I've got no problems with those. It's just like, more personal things like coming up with the language and coming up with the look and branding what I'm doing. I feel like I should have total control of that. I know it's hard. I'd yeah. be easier if I accepted help. I've had offers of help in the past, but I just. Yeah. I do all that stuff myself too. Cause I am a control freak about that. But then it was things like setting up a database. Like my friend mm -hmm. said, okay, so do you have like, where's the list of all the people that have ever bought your stuff? And I was like, Oh, um, <laughs> in my head in my head yeah i'm like um i think some of them are in my like it. yeah they're like in my sent folder and i do have like all the invoices but i haven't like harvested all of the addresses and names and everything out of those but i mean i have yeah. and so she's like okay give me access to those files and she made this huge database of what they bought when they bought it how much they bought for i was like dang <laughs> i should have done this but you know like that kind of control i can give up because it's not branding, it's not words, whatever, but it's so important to have that. And she did it all for me and she did it in a day. It's hard to keep track of all that information too. Like I yeah. constantly am like, how do I know you? What did you buy? Yeah. Shit. I hope I don't say the wrong thing, <laughs> you know? know? And if you just have it all in a great big Google doc or whatever, it's like, there it is. There's their name. Here's what they bought. Here's the mm -hmm. size they loved. Here's the humor that they liked, or they, you know, they bought a more political piece, or they bought a more, or they bought a quilt, or whatever. And then you know exactly what you're dealing with, and and you know, next time you have a quilt show, you can mm -hmm. email just those quilt people. Yeah, and I've got those lists and things, and it, it is helpful before an opening or a public event to just look them over real quick and yeah. refresh the names, because you know, with me, I don't know if I'm talking to somebody that I met, you know from the gallery, from my own studio practice, from the bar where I work, <laughs> yeah. or, you know. You've just got your index fingers on everybody's elbow and just moving them along. Just yeah, moving them just along. Like, who the hell is this guy? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, the, I'll tell you, this first installment of Pain Points with Terrence Payne was uh -huh. fabulous. Let me get right to the point. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, another one, TM, TM. Um, yeah. Okay, now we have to finish things off. Did you say all the things you wanted to say? Yeah, I think we covered it all pretty well. I mean, um, you know, I've been meaning once I, I've been meaning to organize these articles better and put them on the gallery website. Once those are up, I'll let you know, and okay. maybe we can provide a link for people. But um, until yeah, now, they'll just, until then, they'll just have to listen to this episode over and over. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so one of my very favorite things about you is your stories. And the last time we went out for dinner when I was in, why was I there? I don't know. I was in Minneapolis or something. I went out for dinner with you and Carolyn and I mm -hmm. laughed 
every time I'm with you, I laugh so hard that my abs and my face hurt after because it's just like a constant stream of ridiculous stories. And I, I've often joked that you should have a podcast of your own called Shit Terry Says. Now, you're too busy being an artist and gallery owner to do this. So I'm going to have a segment called Shit Terry Says. Okay. Okay. And what we're going to do, I did this on the, la the last time you were on the podcast. I just threw out a random thing. Uh-huh. To see if you had a story about it. And you always do. It's just I a given. So. Oh, you will. So today, because of when this is airing, I'm throwing out Halloween costume. Oh, my fucking God. All right. The first story I'm going to tell. <laughs> see? I knew it would not be a problem. Uh, okay, go. I, You know, lately, obviously, I've been thinking about... Um, the political correctness of the Halloween costumes that I had as a child, one of which was a Lebanese terrorist, which I can't believe my fucking parents let me go out dressed like that. But I thought it was cool. Oh, it was like, God. you know, it was the 80s. Everybody was our enemy. <laughs> um, but my favorite costume I ever did was a mob hit. I had like a shark skin suit, the shiny like mafia suit. Yeah. And I had the... A red and white checkered uh, handkerchief that I tucked into my neck with like bits of spaghetti on it, and then I had a, I made a fake meatball with spaghetti on a fork, and a bullet hole in my head. And people are like, "What are you?" And I'd sit in a chair and pretend I was eating spaghetti, and then knock myself over the back of the chair. That's gold. <laughs> and I was like, "I was mob hit." And you're like, "You're an idiot." That's <laughs> what you are. <laughs> That's pretty, um, that's committing. Yeah. That, yeah, I don't do that anymore. No. I just, yeah, I don't go out. Do you guys get trick-or-treaters? No, not in our neighborhood. Really? Yeah, yeah no. We're, oh. we're in the city. They don't let their kids out <laughs> in my neighborhood. Every once in a while you get like a high school kid all stoned just looking for free shit. It's just like, get off my porch, man. <laughs> It's not gonna work. Yeah. Um, well see, I knew you'd have a story. I yeah. I can't believe your parents let you go as a terrorist. But yeah, you know, it was a different time. It was a different time. People were assholes in the eighties. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Well, you know what? We have covered so much. People are gonna love this. Uh, I hope so. I loved it. I learned okay, lots cool. of stuff because, you know. I'm trying to do this art thing now and there's lots of, uh, it, you know, you don't like, I didn't learn anything like this in art school. No, neither did I. I didn't honestly, I had no idea. No, the practical That's, stuff. And then you come out and you're like, uh Oh yeah. And you know, there's, you just kind of, the, the way that I figured a lot of this stuff out, you know, you have like a certain, when I got out of school, I had an expectation of the way things would be, which was totally unrealistic and based on movies that I saw also in the 80s, which were total lies. And when I got out into the world, I was like, oh, I got to get a job using my art degree. And the only fucking job I could get was working for some asshole making his shitty sculptures, which is where I learned everything on how not to be an artist. But where I, I learned the most was referring back to this uptown bar that I used to work at. There's a lot of other artists and musicians and performers that work there and it was a live music venue. So I'm watching all these like punk, you know, indie bands come through that are doing everything themselves. And I was just like, 
you know, why can't I do that with my art? And started gradually building this community of artists and getting to know this, getting into this network and figuring out how to do things myself. And mm -hmm. is that why you started Rosalex? Yeah, because I was um, very comfortable with doing things on my own by that point. And, you know, I've been sh showing with different galleries and I was like, I feel like I could do a better job of promoting my work myself and that I don't have to give the commissions to the gallery owner because, you know, I always like, I feel like they're just like in the way between me and my audience and they're restricting what I'm going to show and telling me this, that, and the other thing. And I'm just like, you know, it's awesome that you took a risk on me, but I'm going to go take a risk on myself now mm. and see how this works. And, we've been able to do a pretty good job and, you know, we've helped over a hundred artists that have been members of the gallery, you know, come in without a lot of, um, experience exhibiting their work or selling their work or, you know, maintaining mm -hmm. their studio practice. And we've been able to share the work we've done with each other and help them have better careers. So mm -hmm. yeah, it's been great. It's and been how really do you, cool. and, because I know you do your open door show every year. Do you take in new artists annually or how does that work? Just in case people want to reach out to you. Um, the way that, well, yeah, obviously I should plug the open door or cheer this year is Todd Boakley, who owns um, the Boakley Gallery, which is one of the longest running galleries here in Minneapolis. And he's a super cool guy. But Open Doors started as a way for us to um, open our space up to the community at large. It's a juried exhibition for $35 entry fee. You get to submit three image samples. And it's grown to be one of the more respected and renowned sort of um, shows like that in the state. And it's great for us because we're able to see what other people are doing and get a look at some artists that we might invite to submit their work in the future and be a member of the collective and get to actually work with them and start a relationship with them that way. Mm -hmm. um, but generally the way, yeah, like we just um, work just with artists from the area. And when, when somebody leaves the gallery, it's just kind of a word of mouth thing. Yeah, uh, Everybody's got an idea of an artist they want to work with in the future. And that's been something we've been reassessing lately because we feel like we've been cutting ourselves off to certain audiences because we're just going into the social pool of people that we know. And so we've been trying to figure out ways to bring in artists from other communities into the gallery too. So hopefully that's something we'll get figured out in the near term. Hmm, so cool. Yeah. I love yeah. everything you guys are doing. It's really fun to kind of follow along and watch and, I always love everybody that you um, that you work with, and yeah, you're doing cool stuff. Thanks. I'm going to be um, in Minneapolis in April. I heard that you're staying at our house. <laughs> oh, am I? That's what Carolyn said. I don't think I am. I'm going out for dinner with you. Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't know. I'm only half listening. Yeah, I know. I think it's just honest. dinner. So make sure you have funny stories for me. But I, you know, I've never actually been to Rosalux. Are you serious? Yeah. So I have to come uh -huh. and do that. Yeah, for sure. I'm trying to think who's showing in April. It'll be something cool. It's probably you. 
No, you're February. No, I'm showing in February. Yeah, okay. Um, well, I'm going to do that for sure. But we're we're going to be talking. There's going to be more pain points. Pain points. With Terrence Payne <laughs> coming up before that. So um, anyway, thank you so much for all of this amazing information. I'm sure people absolutely loved it. I absolutely loved it. I'm going to go and make art that I want to make right now. And um, yeah. if you make a cape, I would like one. Yeah, hopefully. We'll see how that goes. Okay. I think they could be really cool. They could. I'm putting in my order for the first, just, you know, if it ever happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nice pentagram with some yes. upside with go down head. crucifixes. Yeah, yeah, fuck yeah. yeah. That would be great. Um, Satan sells. <laughs> totally. <laughs> totally. Um, okay, well, say hi to Carolyn for me. And, um, I will. I will talk to you soon. All right. Thanks, Danielle. Okay. Bye. Okay. I loved that. Now, to be honest, I invited Terrence to be one of my co-hosts because he's an incredibly creative artist and an absolutely hilarious person. And yes, I know that he's been running Rosa Lux for years now, but wow, his advice segment was filled with gem after gem after gem. Not that I ever doubted his brilliance, of course. I am so excited for the next round of Pain Points with Terrence Payne. See? Nailed it. Oh, sound effects. Okay, I'm going to use today's Jumpstarter project as an opportunity for a sh shameless self-promotion. Uh, my brand new book, A Big Important Artist, A Womanual, just hit shelves this past Wednesday. Hmm, two books about women artists. Turns out people do want to read about them. But I digress. This book is filled with bios of contemporary and historical artists, but it also has 30 projects for you and pages to work on right in the book if you want to. So I'm going to pull one from there. And since Terrence gets some of his inspiration um, from working at a bar, listening to and observing other people, I'm going to go with um, project number six, which is titled Listen for Inspiration. I'm going to read it right out of the book. Ready? Here we go. I don't know about you, but I love eavesdropping. You can gather all sorts of gems simply by keeping quiet in a public place. Seriously, people say crazy stuff, and you can use that to your artistic advantage. Pop this book and a pencil into your bag and head to your favorite cafe. You'll be spending 30 minutes there, so grab a coffee or tea, and maybe something with chocolate on it, and get comfortable. Use the line pages provided to write down anything and everything you overhear. Perhaps it will be one side of a phone conversation, a particularly complex coffee order, or song lyrics that you hear playing in the cafe. Even partial sentences that you don't quite catch work too. Just write it all down. Once you're back in the studio, choose your favorite combination of words and create something using them as your starting point. You might end up making a narrative painting, a hand-lettered piece, or maybe you'll even incorporate these stolen words as the first line in a haiku. As with every project in this book, I'll provide the starting point, but the finish is entirely up to you. Okay, so that was it. Um, now it's your turn. Off you go. If you make something that you want to share with everybody, post it on Instagram and use hashtag AFYE projects. That's art for your ear projects. Hashtag AFYE projects. To see all of the work and to get the links that Terrence and I talked about, just pop over to my site, thejealouscurator.com. Thank you so much to Terrence Payne and all of his very insightful pain points. Thanks again to Thrive Mastermind for supporting this episode. And of course, thank you for listening. There will be more art for your ear next weekend. See you then.